We're still celebrating Strep Throat Month here at the Hacienda. But I'm hearing that some of you are equally afflicted on the receiving end by what seems to have been some sort of spontaneous itunectomy. Now, I imagine that if you're listening right now, you've probably fixed the problem. Right? And if I take care of myself and eat my soup, then I'll take care of my problem. Eventually. And then we can read stories to one another and get right back upon the high horse of our own little romance. I hope. But you should let me know if you're still having problems, because I have no way of knowing. And in all honesty, maybe I'll stop whining about mine. (laughs) But probably not. So, good evening. It's Thursday, the 28th of February, 2008, and it's Miet's Bedtime Story Podcast. Lonesome Road by Gina Barriot. Upon the sidewalk, glancing down through the high wire fence at the mothers on the benches, he recognised her by the way her head bowed over her knitting, as it used to bow over her left-wing periodicals. Meekly and thoughtfully, and eager to lift and do somebody some good with what was in the print. He went down the concrete ramp and across the tan bark and spoke to her over the children in the sandbox. She lifted her basket from the bench to the ground, hastily, to forestall, he knew, any humiliation that might be for him in the stares of the other women because he was a negro approaching a white woman, and he went round the sandbox and sat down where the basket had been. "'You haven't changed much,' he said. "'Don't tell me that,' she laughed. "'You've got kids you're watching?' he asked, "'searching among the ones in the sand for the one to resemble her. "'A little girl with light hair was watching them. "'She turned away with solemn shyness "'when her mother introduced her and resumed her digging.' "'I have a boy, too,' she said, looking out over the playground to the baseball formation. "'He's older. He's eight. "'The sight of the girl, the talk of the boy, disturbed him. "'It was as if she had close allies now, allies she herself had created to reject him with, "'some other man's children.' That's a little army, he said. I got a little army too. I got three in mine, two girls and a boy. The other day the boy climbed up to the medicine cabinet and swallowed the iron tablets and had to go to the hospital to get pumped out. They're out of their minds, he said, laughing with her. As the laughing waned, she pushed back her bangs a gesture he remembered that hid her face for a second in the pretense of clearing away interference. Her hair had darkened, and her eyes glancing at him from under her hand with a flash of painful shyness seemed less blue, faded to the colour of a dim sky. He knew that she saw him as better looking than he'd been twelve years ago. 
Then he'd had a skinny, agitated look. Now at least he was a little fatter, a little calmer. His light grey expensive suit, the reward and requisite of a publicity man for a big insurance company. If one of them was at a disadvantage, it was she. She was nobody to be intimidated by, any more, to be saved by, to beg from. Up on the sidewalk, he had seen that she was less than she had been. And it was this lessening that had enabled him to approach her. That's what they'll do. They'll scare the wits out of you, she said, and sighed, laughing. I guess every joy brings a burden along with it. You don't realise that so much until you've got kids. That's true, that's true, he said, disparaging with a smile her ready wisdom. In the past, she had given out her left-wing maxims, but this had the sound of religion, or some level of acceptance that was lower than the level of past maxims. You can reverse it too, he said, like every burden brings its joy. That's so, she agreed, taking him seriously. A burden can make you more humane. And there's a gratification, isn't there, in being humane? Her voice fading out as it used to do when she had tried to help him with her aspirin kind of radical remedy for a disease that had got him by the throat. I can't hear you, he said, bending his head toward her. I was just agreeing with you, she said. If they don't kill you... Who? she asked irritably. The burdens, the burdens, weren't you telling me about burdens? He said, keeping up his jibing smile to make a joke of their conversation, yet feeling again that misery that used to come of their attempt to be honest with each other. Everything they had said in honesty, in revelation of themselves, had had the sound of melodrama. Nothing had had the ring of honesty, perhaps because he had expected honesty to sound like an understatement, to sound modest. No matter how honest you were, he used to think, it all should sound like an understatement because you never knew the whole story. Instead, their honesty had always sounded like the shout of someone sure he knew the whole thing. You never used to talk that way, he said, smiling. When you were always deploring burdens, there wasn't any compensation that went along with them. But I still deplore them, she said. That's good, he said drolly, wanting to ridicule her for past certainties because her rejection of him had come from some personal certainty that was unexplainable to him and more wounding because it could not be explained. There had been about her a certainty that she herself had not sensed, but that he had sensed. Everything in her life, he had felt, would be as she wanted it to be because she had that certainty from which all acceptance and rejection sprang, and it was that certainty that had infuriated him, and that now, after twelve years, he still wanted to attack. "'That's good,' he repeated." 
and are you still on the right track? Smiling at her. About how to get rid of everybody's burden. Though the way I heard it, everything fell apart after the Khrushchev revelations. Is that right? She was not embarrassed, he saw. She was instead reflective, as if she herself had never been in the midst of whatever fell apart. What we learned from that, she said, is that there are more answers than one. Ah, oh, yes, ah, yes, he said, nodding, engaged, clasping his cross knees and rocking a little, seeing that he could be relentless about this certainty too. And what are you doing with all the answers? She glanced at him to see his purpose. There isn't much you can do, she said. I mean, you take the integration struggle. She glanced at him again, smiling. I still use the same old cliché words, don't I? It is a struggle, he said. I mean, they're doing it on their own, she explained, flushing. There were those three boys who were murdered down there. I mean, two were white, and people from the north are working down there, but up here, there isn't much you can do. They're doing it on their own. They're mostly on their own. She's all melted down to a spoonful of owl shit, he thought. He had refused her remedy, and that year he had known her. He had argued with her for hours, but now he found himself content of her for getting melted down in the heat of old lost battles. The men she had introduced him to, those men who had cornered him with their barrage of knowledge until it felt like a criminal in his own ignorance, were they all melted down. Though he had opposed them, he felt now that they had deserted him. Yeah, they're on their own, he agreed. They were always on their own, reminding himself with that retaliation of the accusation he had to himself levelled against her at the end. You're leaving me on my own. And he remembered what the end had done to him, how he had gone to hell for a year after. He remembered the last meeting in a flea-infested hotel room on the Embarcadero. He had called her up, he had cried, he had threatened to kill her and himself. She had come up with a hamburger and a paper bag, trying to make it seem that all he required was food in his stomach, so no more could be asked of her. He had been drinking for three days, and he was sick. Vomit was on his shirt and sour whiskey on his breath. He had wanted to be obnoxious, to reveal himself to her in all his possible obnoxious suffering, and he had wanted her to love him in spite of all and because of all. He had taken her face in his hands and covered it with kisses from the mouth that had cursed her, telling himself it was what she had come for. She had let him take the pins from her hair and lock the door, and she had stayed with him from noon to midnight.
but it was the end. She had left him on his own. Yeah, then on their way, he said, musingly agreeable. A boy was coming across the tan bark, gazing at them. A kid with a wondering, bored look. He stood up and shook hands with the boy, who found a sandwich in the basket and walked away eating. Do you want a sandwich? she asked the little girl who was watching, and the girl hung her head. Come on, said the mother, and he heard again that sweetness in her voice, the light sweetness he remembered from the beginning, when he had telephoned her every evening and talked with her for hours, always with his radio turned up loud with a symphony so that she could hear in that background music the possibilities between them, the young social worker with her unmistaken politics, and the young reporter with his unmistakable intelligence. She shy? he asked. Mine is shy too, the littlest girl, always hanging out behind her mama. They grew out of it, she said. Oh, hell yes, laughing indulgently. She looked around for her knitting and found it beside her. You got thin, he said. Oh, maybe, she shrugged. You well? he asked her kindly. And kindliness actually possessed him. He felt that his face had suffered its way to kindliness for her and he wished that she would look up and see before it was too late. Her hands were working the needles, her head bowed again. In among the darkening hairs were grey ones. There was no polish on her nails, socks instead of nylons, and old tennis shoes. He looked at her closely and thought, frail, frail, frail. Was it just the way some women age fast? Or was it that her substance was gone, that certainty gone, and she was now simply a woman faded and darkened by a sky that belonged to each day and not any more to some great future for everybody? Aside from the usual winter colds, she said, I haven't been sick a day. And you? Not sick a minute, he said, laughing. From the sandbox rose a chorus of wailing and screaming. One child stood pouring sand over another's head, and a third tossed sand over both contestants. She got up to go for her child, who had covered her face with her hands and was crying, and something about the way she moved that was no longer the way she had moved up the stairs ahead of him on the way to his rooms, with his hands on her hips to feel their movement. Something about the change, the lessening, brought on the memory that he had held off since the moment he sat down beside her on the bench. With the ending notes of his laughter unheard by her, with her moments leaving him, he remembered the time before the end, before the hotel, when, lying in his bed, she had covered herself with the blankets 
because she had a question to ask, and she wanted to disappear before she asked it. They had got honest with each other again, maybe because he had begged her again to marry him. I have to ask you, she had said, because how can we know each other if I don't ask you? And she had asked him if he loved her because she was white, and her eyes were afraid of him in his humiliation. Simpering up his face to imitate her, he had hurled newspapers and clothes around the room until she got out of bed and got dressed, too frightened to weep at his tormenting mimicry of her question and at his answer, that if there had to be truth to cement the damn thing together, then the truth was that he hated her. She was too goddamn much trouble. He watched her now taking the child by the hand, leading her away from the melee, and with the hem of her skirt wiping away wet sand from the crying mouth, and knew, watching her, that more was in that question she had asked him that time, more than the desire to be rid of him, to be finally rid of the burden they were to each other, more than to come at last to the core of their love and find no core, Never a dull moment, she said, sitting down on the bench, laughing, her short hair falling across the cheek as she bent to the basket to find something to appease the child who sat on the other side of her. Oh, God, never, he agreed. For a few more minutes he sat with her, leaning forward to say a few coddling words to the child and leaning back to laugh with the mother. When he stood up, she lifted her hand to shade her face from the sun, smiling up at him. She was relieved, he knew, to see him go. He walked briskly, with the step of good health, up the concrete ramp and on the sidewalk again, as he leaned against the fence to pick a scratchy piece of tan bark off his sock. He saw that she was lifting the girl's hand and waving it at him. But he pretended not to see them any more. He could not bring himself to wave back at them, because his pity for her, the pity that he had failed to experience in the time of his love, forbade him small and amiable signals 